Imagine the following. Imagine you had three people who are all competent in English, right? It's a really easy thought experiment. So three people that are equally competent in English, except the following distinguishes them. One guy can read in English and write English, but he can't speak it. He can't sign it. One can sign it, but he can't read it or write it or speak it. One can speak it, but he can't write, sign, or read. So they can't communicate. Why? Not because they don't share a language. They all speak English. They're all totally proficient in English. They don't share a, a system of articulation. So their articulation is obviously different from the language because they both know English. What they don't know is they don't know how to articulate English in the same way. Hello, my geeselings. This is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 85. And this episode is with the singular Ernie Lepore, who is Board of Governors Professor of Philosophy at Rutgers. Ernie is terrific. He's super widely read, super highly renowned. He's come up on a number of episodes already. So three that come to mind are Lavelle Anderson, who's one of his students and with whom I, I spoke about the philosophy of humor. And we actually talk about Ernie's joint work with Lavelle in this episode. And he also came up in the episode with Liz Camp, who's another really wonderful philosopher of language at Rutgers. And then if everything goes to plan, goes according to plan, then episode 84 with uh, Barry Lower, who's another uh, great philosopher, this time of physics from Rutgers. So now that I've, I've done my Rutgers promo, though they, they don't need me to do that. Uh, Ernie's best known for his work in the philosophy of language, as I already indicated, but he's also published in philo philo Philosophical Logic, uh, Metaphysics, uh, Philosophy of Mind. In this episode, though, we largely, pretty much exclusively, I think, uh, stick to the former. So the conversation begins with a bunch of really great stories that Ernie has from his time working with some of the, the giants of 20th century philosophy. So he studied with Ed Gettier or uh, Gettier. We unfortunately didn't get down to the bottom of just how this name is supposed to be pronounced, but also Jerry Fodor, Donald Davidson, Michael Dummett, uh, Quine, and Barbara Party. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Uh, but, but after this, after these fun stories, we then turn to some quite general problems or topics in the philosophy of language. So first, we talk about language and thought and meaning, and then we talk about metalinguistic negotiation. And you'll hear what that is, because if you're like me, you've never heard that phrase before. And then linguistic conventions. But then we turn to the main arc of Ernie's upcoming book with Una Stoinich of Princeton University, which is on slurs. And we talk about what slurs are, because this is actually pretty difficult to pin down. And then we also discuss the three main accounts of slurs. So those are content accounts, which generally hold that slurs are bad because of what they mean. Then there are non-content accounts, and this is where we get into Ernie's joint work with Lavelle, where they hold in, in this work that slurs are taboo. 
and his work with Matthew Stone in which slurs are prohibited because of negative associations that they have, or that's why they're bad. And then we turn to this new account with Una, which has to do with articulation and pronunciation, and it is really interesting. Also, if everything goes according to plan, you will have just heard a a, a cool thought experiment that uh, goes with this this new theory. Now, Ernie is the author of far too many books and articles to list uh, within the few minutes allotted to this introduction. But a recent book uh, mentioned many times in the conversation and that I just briefly alluded to actually is Imagination and Convention, Distinguishing Grammar and Inference in Language, which Ernie co-wrote with the aforesaid Matthew Stone, who is chair of the Department of Computer Science at Rutgers. So I don't have any more background information, any caveats or anything to throw at you. So the last thing I will say is reviews, comments, likes, subscribes. uh, Those are all so helpful. And now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Ernie. Ernie, I had I had planned on asking you first about how it was that you became interested in the philosophy of language in the first place, but then I saw that in undergrad you studied both philosophy and linguistics, and now I'm wondering whether it was philosophy of language that interested you first, and if you just wanted to have a strong background in linguistics to accompany that, or if it was just some topic in linguistics that made you jump over to philosophy for a different way of approaching the question, how these two interacted and how you got involved in it in the first place. That's a good question. Uh, When I was an undergraduate, at the beginning of my sophomore year, my mother died and I was an only child and she was a single parent. So I quit school and on her deathbed, I promised her I'd become a lawyer. So you can't trust me because I lied to my poor mom on her deathbed. But I, but I went back to college the following year to redo my sophomore year. And I asked, what's a good pre-law major? And they said, there are, there are no pre-law majors, but there are, the philosophy would be good. So I said, what, what do you mean philosophy? And I thought, I had read nausea in high school. That's the closest I got to philosophy in high school is nausea, which I did not enjoy at the time. And I thought, well, I'll give it a shot. And my first classes were with Ed Gettier and Barbara Hall Part. Oh, wow. Yeah. And Barbara Hall Part. Mm-hmm. Barbara just kind of pushed, they're both enormously, they're, in fact, their, their treatment of me was, was so good, I'm embarrassed because I never replicated it. I want to pay forward, but it's hard to do what they did. They, Ed Getty would sit with me for hours. I was like an 18-year-old boy. He would sit with me for hours and hours in the, in the coffee room uh, with napkins, doing modal logics and so on, things of that sort. And same thing with Barbara. She was really wonderful. And then Terry Parsons showed up, and he was a huge influence. Oh, wow. So I think Terry, between Terry and Barbara, I was settled on language by the end of undergraduate school. Undergraduate school. And then when I went to graduate school, my advisor was John Wallace and Michael Root. John Wallace was had been Davidson's prize student at Stanford. Actually, they all everything begins at Stanford. And um, mm, I like to hear that. I'm really interested in linguistics and language, so I learned a lot from him as well. So it was always a passion. Also, I think that um, Brian McLaughlin and I grew up together in Hudson County, New Jersey, with Jersey. I was born in Jersey City. 
and we were not we were not obviously academic types. I mean, my mother had my mother died illiterate. She never learned how to. She never went to school. She was Italian. She didn't go to school in Calabria, and she didn't go to school in the United States. So there was always been this thirst for books and things of that sort that were not around. They were not available. Um, so I always felt a bit of an outsider in academia early on. So did Brian, I think, as well. And I think that the language, Fossil language, drew me in because I thought this is the way to, I thought, now it looks silly in retrospect, but I thought this is the way to improve myself. Um, I had a lot of huh. fun doing it. I remember taking my first semantics course. Uh, I was shocked because I went in there and they were like all English majors. I thought, oh my God, they already know English. What are they doing here? They shouldn't be here. I'm the one who needs this grammar course. I thought it was a grammar course. And by the end of the semester, I was essentially tutoring everybody because it was basically a math course. And it had nothing, very little to do with English, as far as I could tell. It would make me a better writer of that sort. So I got into it sort of in an unusual way. And I, the people were so generous with me that I kind of uh, informally adopted them as my new family. So I've always been very close to them. And Terry died this past year, but I had remained close to him right until his death. And Barbara's still flourishing. She's in her mid-80s now. And I see her every, every, year, every other year there's a conference of alumni of UMass. And they treat me as though... I didn't go to UMass as a, as a graduate student, but they treat me as though I did. So I'm welcome to come to the events. And so I see my old teacher, what's left of them. They're all dying. But what's left of them? Barbara's still flourishing, and Bruce Ani is another one still there. Anyway, I won't bore you with all this, but that's sort of the, uh, the longer version than you expected of what happened. No, no, that's fine. Actually, it's since you mentioned Stanford uh, and Barbara Party, I actually interviewed the chair of the linguistics department at Stanford this morning. Yeah, Chris, is it Chris? We, Chris Potts, yeah. yeah. I know Chris well. Yeah, so we had a really fun conversation. I learned a lot, and we actually talked a bit about Barbara. That might have been off, off the recording, though, and he mentioned that she's writing a book on the history of formal semantics, so I'm time. just going to reach out. She's working on it for a very long time. Sorry? She's been working on that book for at least a Yeah, yeah, so I'm hoping I'm going to reach out to her and hopefully we can talk about it. Um, something about your response, though, that really jumped out at me, and I'm hoping you can say a bit more about it, is why you thought philosophy of language or studying philosophy of language would improve you or why you, why you thought of it as self-improvement as opposed to some other area of philosophy. Well, I think what happened was uh, when I finished my Ph.D., well, when I finished what I thought was my finished my PhD, I, was on, I had my first job offer from Notre Dame. I was heading out to Notre Dame that summer, and the graduate program contacted me and said, um, "You still owe us two languages." I said, "What?" He said, "There's a two language requirement for PhD." I said, "There is." I said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, I have a job, and it's defending my dissertation, and I'm ready to go." They said, "Well, you can't leave to learn these languages." I said, "Well, how about the following?" I took like ten math courses, and uh, enough for a master's actually and model theory and set theory and so on like that. I said, why not use formal languages if it's my first language, my second language, actually. I said, okay, we'll do that. I said, well, I'm from New Jersey, so I think English accounts my second language. So the idea being that I didn't get a good education as a, as a high school kid. So I think that's connected to what you're asking about. So philosophy language became a passion for me because I thought the inadequacies. It turns out you don't need to have a lot of English to be good at math. You know, so I was pretty good at math. But, but writing and things of that sort, I was not so strong in. I needed some help. The philosophy language, I mistakenly believe, would help me make me a better writer and better thinker and so on. But maybe that was a mistake, but it was my passion. Also, by the way, my old colleague, Colin McGinn, who's not exactly my close friend, but was a colleague, he one time said to me, 
before you uh, ever, ever embrace a topic, you should always ask yourself, what do you think? If you don't have any thoughts, don't go into the topic. What he had in mind is the following, that the standard, at least in my generation, the standard graduate student would get to graduate school, and they would learn what Frege had to say, and what Montague had to say, and what Davidson had to say. And when you had a discussion with them, it was always like, well, Frege says this, but Davidson says this. So it was always like looking at the world through this veil of some other philosopher. And he thought that was co confused. So you got to ask yourself, what do you think? And that should be your anchor. Mm -hmm. Your anchor should be, here's what I think. How do these guys size up to what I think? Or what's wrong with what I think? So I think that played a large role in, uh, in, in, my, in my attitudes about philosophy of language. It would help me become better at expressing my own views. The more I knew about what the views I were. Mm -hmm. I've actually been thinking about something somewhat adjacent to that advice uh, with regard to my my own philosophical endeavors. But I even before I started studying the philosophy of math, I had a very strong anti-Platonist bent that has continued since I started reading and thinking about the philosophy of math from a more perf more informed perspective. And I sometimes worry, though, that my philosophizing has been tainted by my pre-philosophical intuitions and that I'm just after the fact now struggling or trying to find ways to justify the intuition I had before I really did any serious reading or thinking about well, it. Well, you can always take the Quinean route, right? Quine says there is no absolute space. It's always going to be relative to some position you adopt. So you adopted philosophy of mathematics as your point of departure. Why should that be any worse than adopting fossil biology or fossil physics or any of these other areas? I see no reason to think otherwise. Or do you think that mathematicians are by nature Platonists? And that's the problem. If you think that, by the way, I recommend you go spend a semester in Sweden where they're all Wittgensteinians. It's sort of weird. You go to, you go to math talks and all of a sudden constructivism is on the table and all of a sudden Wittgenstein's on the table. You think, this is a math department? How am I getting Wittgenstein? It's sort of it's... <laughs> well, before we get into the philosophy of language uh, proper, there were two figures that I wanted to ask you a bit more about. One, you mentioned Ed, and you you also pronounced his last name, but I've already forgotten how you pronounced it. And maybe one thing you can do is clarify how his name, his last name is pronounced, whether it's Gedier or Gedier, because nobody seems to know this. Uh, I'll um, tell you in advance, though, that I'm very bad at this. So, for example, I still at this stage in my life don't know if it's Lore or Loer, uh, Capellan or Capellan, uh, Fodor or Fodor. I mean, so I'm, 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 lousy. Okay. I'm lousy at this. I per se Gettier. Because I think it's okay. IER. I think the ending is. I just wrote, I wrote It's IER, so it sounds French. Yeah. I wrote a, a, a memorial you know, piece on him because he was such a great influence on me. He just died this past yeah. year, so he was not, I think it was 92 and a half when he died. And he had a long career. We got along really well. He was a street guy who liked boxing. I, was a, I had been a college wrestler, so he talked about wrestling or boxing all the time. And we got along very well. And he was, he was a big-hearted big guy, very generous with his time. I could not believe how – I just had to stick my head in the door. I said, coffee? I said, yes. And off we go to the coffee shop to talk about modal logic or something, getting your paradoxes and so on. Uh, he was an enormously generous person. So I, I, well, but with that testament, I have no idea if I pronounce his name correctly. I have no idea. But I don't know if I got Barry Lord's name correct. You know, the guy who I lived with for several summers. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that that's exactly what I was going to ask you. I was going to ask a bit about his character and how he was as a teacher, just because, I mean, every single philosophy student, uh, graduate student, undergraduate reads about him, but nobody seems to know too much about him. So it was, it, it's nice to hear that. And the other character I wanted to talk about, and you already just mentioned him, so I won't ask about pronouncing his name, but you worked a lot with Jerry Fodor, who's yeah. such a towering figure in the philosophical world. But because I haven't done so much in the philosophy of mind and cognitive science, he hasn't come up, though. I think um, when I spoke to your colleague, Frankie Egan, she mentioned him. Were the two of you good friends? We're very close, extremely close. He was like a big brother to me. I think there was a maybe a 17 year difference, but it was a big he was like a big brother when he came to the Rutgers. So I met him when I was much younger. I met him at Notre Dame. Actually, I saw him when I was a graduate student. He came to a big conference on perception. He was scary because he was super fast, he was very fast. And he was kind of nasty in his uh, commentaries. But uh, that was his thought. He was, a, as Sue Carey one time said to me, the psychologist, Ned Block Spouse, she said to me, uh, the thing about Jerry was that he was an equal opportunity abuser. So, I mean, he abused everybody the same way, whether you were an undergraduate or a graduate student or a woman or male or old or young, didn't matter. He went after you. Quine, if you were famous as Quine or as unfamous as some undergraduate. The first... Yeah, the egalitarian spirit. When I ran the Cognitive Science Center at Rutgers, the first thing I tried was to have a undergraduate course in Cognitive Science. So it was going to be the first time Fodor had ever taught undergraduates. He never taught undergraduates at Rutgers or CUNY. I think even at MIT, he was just a graduate person. But, but he had not been undergraduates for a long time, at least. And the very first undergraduate course in the cognitive science, he was going to teach the first week of lectures. And he was very dutiful. You know, I mean, he started bothering, this is going to be in September. In June, he's already pestering me saying, how am I going to teach this? This is very complicated. Give me some help. I need some advice on pedagogy and so on. So he prepared industriously for like two or three months. He gets in there and he tells his class how hard the material is. It's incredibly difficult. Please raise your hands as soon as there's something you don't understand. I, want, I care about your questions. It matters to me that I get across to you my ideas. Nobody would raise their hand. They were terrified of him. Finally, in the second class, somewhere towards the end, some brave soul raised his hand. And Jerry had just said, there are as many English sentences as there are natural numbers. So therefore, there are indefinitely many English sentences. And the guy said, why should we assume there are indefinitely many natural numbers? And he said, that's the most stupid question I ever heard. <laughs> and, and, and no one raised their hand for the rest of the semester. They said, you know, he caught us once, you're not going to get us again. So Jerry basically ruined the course by screaming at this kid. And even though he had begged the kid to ask questions, he was harsh. So uh, mm. by making him sound like a monster, he was not a monster. He was easily, it was a lot oh, of fun. A good story. He was a hilarious person. He was very, very quick-witted and very funny and always, always on uh, appropriately placed uh, witticisms. Probably the wittiest person I ever met. Mm-hmm. His writings like that. Yeah, it was fun. We wrote a book together. And we wrote maybe maybe twenty five articles. I, I think he owned me for the nineties, from ninety to, to two thousand. I was Jerry's boy. I was happy to be collaborating with him. We wrote a book on holism. It was very good. But it was difficult for me because we wrote a book called Holism, and uh, uh, there were six chapters. Three people that I cared about that we were criticizing. Three people that he cared about that we were criticizing. So we agreed to be gentle on these people, but we, we, apparently we were incapable of it. And my uh, then mentor, Donald Davidson, um, 
was so taken back by the exchanges with Fodor that two things happened. One of which is he didn't talk to me for five years. I was in the doghouse for five, it took me five years to get out of the doghouse before he could talk to me again. Oh, wow. That was just rough on me. And the other one was uh, he always referred to the book from then on as Fodor's book. And he thought he was complimenting me by doing this. Somehow this is somehow a compliment. So, hmm. um, so that, that, there, there it goes. So they, didn't, they, they did not get along. I remember it was a famous APA session in Portland, Oregon. Must have been several hundred people in the room. And Fodor and Davidson were going at it, banging at each other. See, what, the problem that I created for Davidson was this. If Fodor interpreted Davidson, it was very easy for Davidson to say, well, Fodor doesn't understand the first thing about my views. He's misinterpreted me. But if I interpreted him, he's already in print saying how I was one of the best people alive on his work and that I knew his work really well and so on. So I lend credibility to the inter the exegesis we were doing. So if I, so if Fodor and I agreed on the exegesis point, it was harder for Davidson to wiggle out of it. And this was very, you know, as you can imagine, it was very disturbing for him. So after one of these sessions, they appeared where I felt like an abuse. I was in the middle of Fodor and Davidson screaming at each other. Remember at one point, um, Davidson said that we had misinterpreted him. I said, no, Don, look on page. And, he said, and Jerry said, Ernie, keep quiet. He says we misinterpreted him. Let's hear what his actual view is. This is the beginning of a three-hour session with hundreds of people in the audience. And, and, Fod and Davidson says, we're not here to discuss my view. We're here to discuss your interpretation of my view. He says, yeah, I know, but we got you wrong, obviously. You told us we got you wrong, so you correct us. Tell us what your view is. And he said, well, that's a complicated affair. And Simon Blackburn was the chair. He said, Donald, this is a three-hour symposium. How complicated are your views? <laughs> <laughs> and then it started. And the screaming started almost immediately. And, and I felt like the abused child in the middle of these people because I was close with Davis. Davis was like a father figure to me. And Jerry was like a big brother figure to me. I remember after the session ended, I crawled back to my hotel room and I opened up the Frigo bar and I had all those little bottles of booze in there. I just poured them all down my throat, went to bed and said, I hope I wake up and forget all this for happening. And in the middle of the night, uh, there was a little scratchy noise I could hear, and I got up, turned the light on, and it was a note from Davidson who was leaving for going somewhere or other. And he said, Dear Ernie, I still love you, but let's talk about these issues far away from the screaming Jerry. And that turned out to be false because he didn't talk to me for five years. That was the end of our oh, relationship. Man. Then we had a, uh, a, a resolution, uh, reconciliation in Girona, Spain, at a conference in his honor that I went to. But I think basically I had the right articles about Davidson semantics the rest of my life, the rest of his life at least, in order to get back into his good graces. Hmm. Well, this might not be what you'd want me to respond to, but what I find most amazing about this conversation or, or this story that you've just told me is I would love to have some insight into both of these men's psychology that they're able to have this argument like that in front of 300 people, because that's just a level of confidence that I, I can't imagine when giving just like a little presentation uh, frightens me. Oh, but, so, uh, so Davidson had this steely, he, they were very different. Davidson was much, he screamed at you silently. You know, he was, he, I asked Tyler Burge about him. I mean, Tyler Burge, I, I think was in therapy for years over his interactions with Davidson. <laughs> uh, Davidson would just stare at you. He's one of these guys, I heard Austin was, I never met Austin, but I heard he was like this as well. They would watch you and wait for you to make a slip up, no matter how small it was in the early paragraphs, and pounce on that. And then you'd be so distracted that from then on you were sort of unstable. And that was Davidson. He looked mm -hmm. at these steely blue eyes and just stared at you and sit back in the chair like this and just watch you. And you just sort of, you felt like you're being judged every moment. 
photo is more like in your face. You know, I'm going to wreck you. I'm a wrecking ball. I mean, so it was the original wrecking ball. And uh, so it's very different. Davidson was screaming quietly and Jerry was screaming loud, very loudly. Uh, and he would get exasperated. He'd always think he's going to have a stroke. He was so noisy and screaming and yelling all the time. Uh, so they were very different kinds of creatures. Um, <laughs> one of the things that came up in the discussion with Davis, you know, I visited Berkeley to teach for a semester in the, in the uh, mid-90s. So we talked much more about uh, Davidson that period and much more about photo with, with Davidson. And um, one of the things that was clear to me is that Fodor, that Davidson didn't have a high opinion of Fodor. He thought that uh, what he was doing was kind of psychology. It wasn't really philosophy. And and Fodor didn't have a high opinion of Davidson. He thought there was no arguments. It was just like a lot of gestures, assertions without any argument. I remember one point he said, can you give me the damn argument for this position? And Davidson said, well, it's a position in philosophical space. He said, oh, so you don't have an argument. Uh, you know, so he's always very polemical. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that there were very different kinds of people. You know, Davidson was much more quiet and, uh, and intensive, very much, very intense. Photo is much more like a street brawler. So they were very different people. I, uh, they, they, were, they were definitely doing nothing wrong. Oh, but one time Davidson said to me that I think Photo is very good at philosophy at the level of what she does it. You know, that, that little add-on at the level she does it is sort of like saying, like for a kindergartner or something like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's got some bite to it. And I remember one time I was, uh, I was uh, very close friends with Michael Dummett. He was, he was kind of a father figure. And yeah. I was visiting Fodor. I was giving the John Locke lectures at Oxford. And I asked Michael, why was he attending him? He said, no, I don't go to him. I said, why not? And he was a not very dedicated, decent human being, Michael. It was not a smart aleck of any sort. And he said to me, I don't share enough assumptions. So it was clear to me that there was a, a big gap between the way Davidson and Dummett and Barry Stroud and that crowd in general perceived how philosophy is perceived and done. Whereas with Fodor, he just thought philosophy was continuous with science. So in some weird way, though I think he had a lot of contempt for Quine, he was kind of Quinean in respect that he didn't think this, he thought philosophy was just like science. You know, things could get wrong, you make mistakes, you get things right. It wasn't like some set of necessary a priori truths that you were in pursuit of. So in that way, he was much more influenced by Putnam, I think. And he was very proud of, of the, his uh, denial of the analytic extinction. Example. That sounds odd, right? You think of Fodor as, you think of Fodor and Katz, which is all about the analytic extinction. But by the time he got to his philosophy of mind self, his philosophy of psychology phase of his life, and stopped doing semantics, he sort of renounced the semantic stuff that he did on semantic markers with Katz, Postal. Um, he had embraced this idea that philosophy was continuous with science and there was no analytic extinction, none, which is bizarre because if you, if you learned about Fodor from his early work on semantics, he thought this guy is obsessed with the analog of that extinction. I don't know if that helps or that was clear, but I'm happy to amplify any of it if you want me to. Well, the the thing that jumps out at me most about what you just said was the depth of uh, Dummett's uh, statement that we don't share enough assumptions. For it to be worth his uh, while. That, sorry? So for it to be worth his while to go to the lectures. And David right. Wiggins did that, though. David Wiggins would sit there and one time, David, a quiet uh, poet said to me, that guy, if he ever opens his mouth, he better say something really intelligent because he sits there smirking at me week after week. <laughs> Man, they're like, like cats and dogs. Like cats say. and cats. But it's <laughs> cats uh, and poet. Yeah, or cats and cats. I mean, 
Dummett, uh, Davidson, Quine, Stroud, uh, Fodor, Gettier. It's amazing how many Barber Party. It's amazing how many towering figures you've had in your life. Uh, and I mean, we could talk about them for hours and hours, but uh, if you want to, that's fine. But we could also, we should also probably move on to some of your philosophical work too. I think it was, I don't think I did anything unusual. I think that there, I think that a lot of philosophers are very shy. Um, and I was shy. In fact, Brian McLaughlin likes to say, I knew Ernie when he was shy, meaning that our relationship goes way back. But I didn't find it difficult to interact with these people. That was not the hard part. Um, Quine, for example, was extremely approachable. I became very close friends with him in, in his life, and I'm still close friends with his children. Um, hmm. These people are not unapproachable. I think some philosophers you know, put them on pedestals and they're afraid to approach them, but they were easy to talk to. You have to be careful. You know, you know, Quine didn't want to talk to you about Putnam's work, for example. One of the things I remember when I was at Notre Dame trying to tell Al Plantinga about David's about Quine's project, I could see his eyes glaze over, and he just didn't want to talk about. It. Is that a stage of his career where he wanted to talk about Plantinga's views? Uh, so you had to know a little bit about how the conversation should run, but they were all very. I never. I can't think of anybody that I found unfriendly in that crowd. None of them. Putnam was friendly. Hmm. They were all accessible. Maybe things have changed. I don't know. Well, there was this phase in philosophy in the seventies, I guess, where there were some very unusual people doing philosophy. I mean, odd people. I won't name any names, but it's obvious to anyone who remembers that period. Uh, and I think a lot of the senior members of the field weren't comfortable around these odd people. And I think when people showed up like yourself, let's say, who was relatively normal, and I think you're probably very normal, I hope, I hope. And it was easy for them. To, it was like a throwback. Now, these were guys who fought in World War II, liked to have their martini every night, maybe two martinis even, and so on, enjoyed their family life and so on, enjoyed traveling, and had ordinary lives by and large. And, and then the people they were interacting with, the younger generation of philosophers that, come, that grew up in that generation were uh, unusual. They were different. They were, uh, I won't go any further than that. But anyone who went through that period will know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, that was really fun. Why don't, for now, though, we, we turn to some philosophical discussion. And I think a nice way to get into the, some of the content is just to touch on a few basics first. So I had in mind some of the material in your course, Diversity of Interpretation and Communicative Success. Yes. And so, so first off, right off the bat, and I think you... Maybe you gestured at this before we um, started recording, but what is the sort of simplest, most bare bones philosophical account of how we communicate thoughts to one another through language? Well, I think most people would say something like crisis, even though I have a whole book with Matthew Stone on convention imagination, which is anti-Gricean. Anti but I think most people, mm -hmm. even Fodor, would, was comfortable talking this way. It's not really exactly... It wasn't following Grice to the letter of the rules of law, but it was something like um, you have these communicative intentions. You want to communicate something. You think how best to get them across. You encode them in language, let's suppose, or you realize that in Grice's case, you have two ways of doing it. Right? You can do it. You can say what's said. That's the, that's the part that's encoded in the language, or you can do what's implied or conveyed, and that's the implicature part. That's the psychological part. There, you rely on rationality. You rely on the fact that this guy knows the language and he, and, and he or she is rational. Um, 
that picture is that so now under that model of communication, communication involves mind reading, right? So the person has to figure out what, what your intention was in speaking. There's all sorts of cues. If you know the conventions of the language and you know the context of what you're in, you can kind of figure out what he, what he or she is trying to express. That I think is the bare bones sort of common thread that runs through a lot of people's thinking on this. Mm-hmm. And the question, and the, then, debates, the debates are about how much, how much of this conventional. So for example, um, for my generation, when I started off with working with Parsons and Part T, uh, Grice's work was not well accepted in that community. It was too loosey-goosey. It, was not, it wasn't like Montague Grammar, for example. Uh, and then along came Kripke, wrote this famous paper on speaker reference and semantic reference. And he said, Grice is kosher. You can read Grice. He's okay. And all sorts of stuff on scale and plickages came into play, which Kripke endorsed. So there's a, an example in, that he take borrows from Grice in the article, in Kripke's article, about how you say you're watching a magic act and you're describing it to your friend. You say, well, then the magician took a white handkerchief and put it in a hat and pulled out a red handkerchief. And then you say, well, it looked red. Now, if any two sentences are compatible or something is red and it looks red, there's no contradiction there at all. But somehow or other, saying the weaker claim after the stronger claim, according to Kripke and Grice and others, creates this idea that there's a, this, that there's a, that there's a disagreement between you and the other person. So if you follow a strong claim, and Kripke calls it an anthropological, sociological, psychological uh, fact about humans' interaction, that if you follow a strong claim or a weaker claim, you're casting doubt on the stronger claim. That's supposed to be about the psychology of understanding. Matthew Stone and I argue in our book that following the work of Julia Hirschberg's that has nothing to do with, has nothing to do with psychology, it has to do with pure conventionality, that the, in, the, the uh, intonation pattern, well, it looked red, well, it looked red, rising, falling like that, it means in English that I dis- whatever I'm asserting now is in disagreement with what you're asserting. In fact, if you said it didn't look red, it wasn't red, you pull a handkerchief, it wasn't red, I said, well, it looked red, same disagreement. Now, notice if you said, yeah, it looked red, a kind of surprised agreement, you get a different result. That doesn't mean you disagree, it means you agree. So it turns out that you can identify these various intonation patterns, which are Purely part of the English, they're not. They don't work. They wouldn't work in, in Romanian, I suppose, or or, or in uh, Mandarin. Some of that a tonal language, yeah, like Mandarin. Yeah. So it turns out that these are conventions that, in some sense, philosophers miss. So I had a subtitle for the book: but the philosophers are ignorant and linguists are confused. So linguists think a lot of stuff is pragmatic, but it's very rule governed. And philosophers think when they think of pragmatic, they're not thinking of Montague stuff on context sensitivity, they're thinking of Bryce's work in pragmatics. It's supposed to be something about what a rational person would infer in this environment, given what this word means and so on. And that was uh, uh, challenged by Matthew and I in this book numerous times, but one one easy example for a listener to grab onto is the one that this is an intonation pattern in English. And I think because philosophy is predominantly read, people in their minds reading, they have that intonation pattern in place. You know, they don't even realize the role it's playing. So I can't tell you how many people don't know this. I mean, they're surprised when I tell them. They say, that's not a convention. I say, it sure is a convention. Because look at these other conventions we have. So just uh, maybe to paraphrase and get some clarification. So the convention here in this statement, this is read, uh, is that the intonation pattern is 
idiosyncratic to the language and in some way arbitrary and it it conveys meaning well it's and the question is it's conventional in the sense that it's not a law of nature that someone says something right. in that way uh in fact that more likely than not if they're speaking a slavic language and you impose that intonation upon them you're going to get a bizarreness reaction they're like what is that what is he doing whereas in english you immediately know that there's some discourse relation being expressed between the two propositions mm -hmm. so the other guy asserted that it's red you asserted it looks red those are compatible but in the context in which you assert that it's looks red if you do it in a certain manner you're creating not you're not expressing a new proposition you still express the same proposition we're expressing a discourse relationship between what you asserted and what he asserted. And that discourse relation is one of casting doubt or pausing. You know? And that's just a brute fact about English. And one of the other pieces of it is to take out the meditation plans. Like, yeah, look red. That's clearly express a surprise agreement. And it's a different pattern. And there, so the question is, let's study the patterns. And someone like, uh, uh, you might think of Mark Leibowitz, who's at Penn, He's, he spends his career working about the phonology of intonation patterns. I think Chris Potts, one of your senior, one of your teachers there, he knows all about this as well. So it's well evidenced. Mm -hmm. This is common knowledge for linguists, uh, but for philosophers, it's sort of completely alien. I mean, everyone I've, I've been talking about this for 10 years now. Every time I talk about it, people are like, wow, you're right. They immediately get it. They don't deny it. They don't try to deny it. Right. And when you say that philosophers, it's sort of off their radar, is this what Liz, Liz Camp, who we mentioned earlier, again, maybe off the recording, what she might ha say is it sort of doesn't fit the standard model? Well, for example, when Liz and I co-taught a, a seminar last spring in literary criticism, philosophy and literature with Joyce Carol Oates, uh, one of the things that I discovered for the first time, because I've been, you know, Liz and I have been badgering each other for as long as she's been at Rutgers, I think seven or eight years now. We adore each other, but we don't agree. It's sort of a, one of these weird things where we come right up to the theory and she goes one way and I go another way. We agree on all the data. I mean, it's frustrating because we agree on all the data. This is happening across three graduate seminars in maybe seven or eight years. We agree on all the data, but then we draw different conclusions. And I couldn't figure out why this happens. It's just frustrating because I know she's brilliant, so I don't think I'm an idiot. Um, uh, so when we taught the seminar, we spent a lot of time on perspective. And Joyce was really interested in perspective, and Liz was really interested in perspective, and the students were really interested in perspective. They were brilliant students, all lit crit people, not philosophy students, mostly English majors. And one of the things that came became clear during the course of the course was that the models of perspective they had in mind were Henry James, Kurosawa, uh, Nietzsche, people that, you know, analytic philosophers don't read. Because they don't read them for their philosophical views or their philosophical contributions. And I then realized that if you were to ask Henry James, like, what are the necessary and sufficient conditions for perspectives? So he'd look at you like, there's something wrong with you. Like, that's, that's the wrong question. I realized that what I took as a shortcoming of Liz's part was, was a comfortable ending in that context. I began to realize that different contexts require different kinds of exactitude. And in fact, not only they, des they, they, they desire it, they demand it, certain, that you don't go beyond it. If you go any beyond it, you're being, something's wrong with you, that you're being too demanding and so on. So I felt, I realized that the kinds of questions I had been asking her in the philosophy classroom were inappropriate in the literary criticism classroom. 
And I don't know what to make of that yet. I'm still pondering what to do with that. But I think it explains to me why she stops where she stops, and then she draws her conclusions. Where I say, wait, whoa, we got a lot of distance to go yet. So, for example, concretize this for your listeners and yourself. Uh, Liz is happy with living with indeterminacy. She's happy to say that when I utter a metaphor, it might be open-ended, this interpretation. Now, philosophers who grew up under Quine and so on think that's bad. Indeterminacy means no fact that it matter. It means that no matter how hard right. you try, it's not supposed to be just like under-specification. It's not supposed to be some epistemic notion of, a, uh, of just that you don't know. You don't know. It's supposed to be something like that's the way it is. These things are open-ended. You have to understand that. So that no matter how hard you try, you can never complete the interpretation. You might think, well, there's something suspect here. She doesn't find that at all possible. She doesn't find it at all feasible. That there's some some misinterpretation or there's some fault or something. This way, she, she's happy to stop right there and she wants to know why you wanted to go further. That helped. It doesn't reconcile everything, but I was sympathetic to this idea that, you know, depending on how you're approaching a problem, what you count as a explanation might vary. Mm-hmm. Well, I have one last question on about convention since it's come up yes. and it might be something that you don't really have anything to say about, but I recently did an episode. It hasn't come out yet uh, with Frank Jackson and Graham priest. Mm-hmm. So huh. the three of us were talking so and that's yeah, well it was all so, sorry. That's an odd couple. Yeah. Well, it's actually not because they, they both uh, are Australian have done philosophy. Exactly. Well, Graham's English, but they both did philosophy in Australia. And we did the entire episode just on the philosophy of David Lewis because they were both friends of David or David Lewis. It's, it's funny. It feels funny to call him by his first name. But one of the things that we didn't get to because we spoke a lot about uh, possible worlds and metaphysics is his work on linguistic conventions. Because I, if I recall correctly, that was his first major contribution to philosophy among many. And I'm wondering if you could say a bit or tell me a bit about what he had to say about conventions and what his contribution well, was. Well, I think that when I read, I read the book rather late. So I read the book in the 90s, long after I was out of graduate school. I remember sitting with photo one day and saying, this book is phenomenal. Why didn't I know about it? How come no one talks about this book? He said, what are we going to say? David Lewis got it right. David Lewis got it right. He only said that so many times. So this is it was his dissertation, which he had written, okay. with, which he had written with Quine, and Quine writes a preface to it, which is a little sneaky because David had added some stuff about modal logic towards the end of the book, some technical stuff that Quine would not. Which have Quine wouldn't have liked. He wouldn't have liked, but he was commenting on a dissertation. Um, so it's a it's a it's a life changing book to read in the sense that there's lots of frustrations with it. So Michael Rescorlo, who's now at UCLA. Uh, he has a, a Stanford Encyclopedia of, of uh, Philosophy entry on convention. And he goes through all the various criticisms from Tyler Burge and Ruth Milliken, Margaret Gilbert. A lot of distinguished people have written on what they find shortcomings in, uh, in, uh, in, in Lewis's ultimate picture. But the main point, the point about coordination, is one that I don't think anyone's challenging. And that's, that's all you need. If you, talk, if you think you coordinate on an answer, right, that means there are alternative answers that were equally good. You've chosen those, you chose the one. So in that sense, it fits in with your picture earlier. You said conventions are arbitrary. They're arbitrary in the sense that you could have had another one. You could have driven on the right side of the road or the left side of the road. The British could have driven on the right side of the road. We could have driven on the left side of the road. It wouldn't make any difference. 
They're both solutions to a coordination problem. How can we make sure we don't kill each other on the road? Well, we all stay on our side. So um, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if that helps at all, but the main point I wanted to make was just that the, the view is not without its problems, and Rescola lays them all out for us in explicit detail. Very useful piece, I thought. And uh, But it's still ingenious to have seen how to do this. And he took basically a lot of stuff already on the table from decision theory and put it together in a way, and game theory, and game theory, put it together in a way that was accessible to philosophers. And I think it really changed the way people think. I mean, if you look at the early stuff like Quine and Dumb- and Davidson on convention, it's very loose. But when you, once you get to De- Lewis, there's very ex- explicit, strict dictates that you have to satisfy in order to have a convention, as opposed to a custom or something to that effect. Another topic that I wanted to touch on at least briefly is metalinguistic negotiation because I, I, well, one, it comes up in this course, but it also comes up, I think you mentioned earlier in a book project that you're working on on the moment on non-negotiable meanings. But so what I was wondering is just based on the, the phrase metalinguistic negotiation, I'm wondering if it is just a linguistic exchange abstracted from the conversation at hand, let's say like in the object language, but it also occurs to me that metalinguistic negotiation could be silent. So like you and I might decide without using words uh, before having this conversation that we're not going to use a ton of jargon because we know that uh, our audience might not understand all of it right. or something like that. Right. So let me see if I got this right. So there are classic examples that go back to either Grice or Schiffer stuff on, on Grice. Uh, I think I think this is Schiffer's example. So there's a, a, a spouse who has a partner who could, who confuses uh, erotic and erratic. So the spouse uses the word erratic where she should be using erotic. and uses erotic where she should be using erratic. The husband knows this, so he immediately shifts his language because he wants her to make sure she does not hire this plumber. This plumber is a really bad plumber. <laughs> so don't hire that okay. plumber. He's erotic. Okay, so it's yeah. so he willfully makes this mistake in English, but it's almost as if they have a sidebar where there's a local convention between them that you know he's he's coordinating with her with, with her error with her malaprop, right? So he, uh-huh. she has a certain malapropism and he's coordinating on that, and the conversation moves smoothly. So there's a is that the kind of thing you had in mind where the, given the context you say I'm going to shift this word. I know what the word means. Yeah, well, I'm I'm asking if that is what you mean by metalinguistic negotiation. Well, I actually don't believe in metalinguistic negotiation, but that's a different story. Okay. I well, then maybe I should ask you what the textbooks will say metalinguistic yeah. negotiation well, example, is, and then maybe you can tell me why you don't. There's lots of cases of it. Um, um, so the one that I remember, a famous one, is one that I think is from in Ludlow's book on words, where she's talking about this uh, ES, I think it was ESPN, some radio show I was listening to one night in the car, the sports radio, which is, you may know, at least on the East Coast, they get nasty and they're screaming and yelling and so on at each other. I think one of the guys called Mad Dog or something like that. Anyway, they're arguing about the greatest athletes of the 20th century. And some guy had said, Secretariat. He said, Secretariat? Secretariat's a horse. A horse can be a great athlete. They have this debate about whether horses can be great athletes or not. And so there's a case of metalinguistic negotiation, allegedly a case of it, 
because an English athlete meant human being. And uh, now the person's saying, we can add a horse to the list. And the question is, right. how, how, does it, how do you negotiate this? Or other examples, more, 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 more important examples are issues about rape and torture and marriage and so on. They look like they're being negotiated in time, in real time. Was what counted as a rape 100 years ago? What, what didn't count as a rape 100 years ago now counts as a rape today, let's suppose. Or, or you can imagine someone saying, I agree with you, there should be no, you can imagine George Bush saying, I agree with you, there should be no torture, but waterboarding is not torture. And you have a debate about that. So that's, is that the kind of thing you have in mind, those kinds of debates? I think so. Well, I, because I don't really have anything in mind at all, because the first time I came across the term was just when I was preparing uh, for the conversation. It just jumped out at me. Yeah. Well, I don't believe in it. So one of the problems is... Yeah. So tell me why you don't believe in it, because it sounds to that, me... It's a long discussion, but I can make a short version of it very simple, is that if you sure. think that there's a fact of the matter about what your words mean, right, it doesn't follow that uh -huh. you know it. Right? I mean, ignorance and error are, have dominated discussions of meaning since Kripke's Naming a Necessity back in the 70s or 60s, whatever it was. So we use words all the time without knowing what they actually pick out. Like I say, aspartame is, is, is a good sugar substitute. What is aspartame? I have no idea what it is. It's something. That's the stuff that you put in the coffee. You know? That's the best I can do. But a lot of things. I put milk in coffee. I put cream in coffee. I put all sorts of things in coffee. Uh, so that doesn't pick it out. So I think following Kripke and Burge and Putnam and, and even Gareth Evans, who's not an externalist. Lots of philosophers have recognized that we're largely ignorant about what it is we're talking about. We speak, we use words comfortably and appropriately. No one says, hey, you're misspeaking. Uh, but if you ask us, what exactly are you referring to? The best we could do is this quote. We could say, well, I'm referring to aspartame. Yeah, I know, but what is that? Well, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Why should I know what that is? Uh, so there's a place which suggests that when there's this debate about, so why is this relevant to the secretary discussion, which is supposed to be middle linguistic negation? Well, if you take what I just said seriously about ignorance and error, right? Uh, then when the people are arguing over what secretariat means, right? You could view that as an argument about what exactly is it to be an athlete? What exactly what athlete means? You're going to see that as an argument, what is it to be an athlete? We're both ignorant. We think we know. We have theories about it. But we both be, we'll, we'll both be wrong. So this dimension that Kripke added to the program in the 60s allows for us to be able to use language correctly, appropriately, without actually knowing, having false views or incomplete views about what exactly we're picking out. So notice that this allows you for the debate about secretariat, whether it's an athlete or not, that maybe they're both wrong. Maybe one's right and the other's wrong, but we don't know which, because we may not know exactly what athletes are. But that's different from saying we don't know what the word means. We know what the word means. It means athlete. But we don't know what they are. We don't know what is it to be an athlete. That might require sophisticated research of a sociological sign of a sort and so on. See the idea? The idea here is rather than see this negotiating the meaning of a word, rather they're trying to figure out what the word actually means by going outside themselves and exploring the world. So what... One way of one way of of interpreting all this talk about deference and externalism in philosophy is to say that what philosophers really need to do is go out and look at the world if they want to figure out what, the, what they're picking out when they use words. That's not a linguistic project; that's a science project. If you want, I don't know if that helps at all, but no, it 
It definitely does. No, it's very interesting. You see the different takes, um, at least. You see that I'm not agreeing with them about it being a linguistic debate. You have this book on slurs. Is it titled slurs? It's called uh, On Inflammatory uh, Language, The Linguistics and, and Philosophy of Pejoratives. That's the subject. Okay, and is it in print right now or is it's it in sitting at Oxford, but I think that we'll get reports back within a month or so. I'm assuming it will eventually come out with Oxford. Who knows? I mean, the whole world okay. is awesome. right now. But yeah. Well, yeah, well, whenever whenever it comes out, I will, it's of done. course, uh, it's, mention it. It's completely done. I mean, maybe some referees, not, they, they call them readers. Maybe some readers will have something to add to it, but we feel like it's done. It's co-authored with me and it. Uh, one of my former students is now a professor at Princeton, Una Stoinich. Yeah. Well, whenever it comes out, I was just saying, I will certainly uh, mention that in an introduction to some future episode. Or maybe maybe we would talk again with Una or something oh, to speak more she's, about she's it. She's a phenom. Yeah. It's worth talking about her. Yeah. Uh, but for the moment, I think a, a good thing to start with is what is a slur? Because you describe defining them as somewhat thorny in its own right. So how do they differ from other pejoratives that you're less focused on in this book? That's funny because you think you're starting over with the easy question. You're actually starting over with the hardest question. <laughs> Nobody has an answer to that question. It's hilarious. If you look at the literature, no one ever actually tells you what, what is a slur. They say, well, it's a pejorative expression to pick out groups of individuals on the basis of religion or politics or sexual preferences and things of that sort. That's the best they can do. That's a, it's hardly what you okay. call definition. So it's an interesting fact that literature carries on without any definition of the key term, without any real... Some people have said there is between pejorative expressions and slur terms and as a subclass, is that the other pejoratives are based on individual properties that individuals might have. Whereas with slurs, when you use a slur, you talk about a group of individuals and you tie them all together. So when you slur one person who's an X, you're slurring all the X's, right? That's the claim. Uh, Robin Cheshin has a paper where she says this is very murky, and I, I tend to agree with her. It's a very murky distinction. It's not clear where where individual stops and, and groups starts or where groups starts and, and individuals stop and so on. It's very murky. It turns out you can write a lot about this literature without having an answer to that question. Not surprisingly, I guess. You don't have to, well, as long as you know when you have one, that's good enough. Even if you can't. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, methodologically, I guess before we get into some of the content of the book, though, I think this actually does come up a bit in the introduction. But methodologically, how do you go about or deal with the task of writing philosophically about slurs when it's extraordinarily Risk, risky or dangerous to token them. So well, some, some philosophers, like, okay, I'm sorry. I was going to say, I mean, sometimes even just trying to explicate them, what they mean without saying them could be uh, found offensive to some people. And we don't have to go into what's going on with Oxford University Press right now. And um, I think you, you might have mentioned that there's a, a whole hubbub about uh, speech and offensive term. So it's just very much in the air right now. So I'm curious about how you deal with that in this book. Incidentally, I liked how you used the word uh, mudblood from <laughs> Harry Potter. That's how I deal with it. Effect. So um, um, interestingly enough, um, 
and I'm dealing with it more than most people want to do it. So Liz, for example, thinks if you, Tim Williamson, Liz, most people who write on the topic, think if you put quote marks around a slur term, it's okay to use the quote quoted expression. That doesn't carry with it all the bad feelings that are associated with the assertion of the expression, or the use of the expression. So they, they draw the distinction between mentioning a slur term and using a slur term. Tim Williamson is very adamant about this, and that if people are offended by the mention of a slur term, they're, they're confused. They have a use mentioned confusion. I don't buy it that way at all. I think that. Oh, really? No, I believe that the mentions are very bad. Uh, in fact, Randall Kennedy, who wrote a book, a National Book Award for his book, uh, The N Word is the title of the book. Uh, and he and somebody who's a law professor at UCLA are writing a new edition, I think, or a sequel to it. And they wrote to me saying, look, you yourself have said that quoted slur terms are pernicious. We agree. Uh, but you quote them all the time in your paper. And I, I said, I did. I was, they had my, my first paper. So I wrote a paper in the aughts with, with a then graduate student, now professor, a tenure professor at Syracuse named Lavelle Anderson. And yeah, he's been on the show. Lavelle is African American. And I think yeah. he lulled yeah. me into, he lulled me into thinking it was okay to quote these expressions, which it's not. Certainly not for me, at least. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you're going to get you're going to get the same. Now you could just say it's a theoretical that there's a huge theoretical confusion in the community at large. But if you have a way of explaining the data without attributing false beliefs, to, uh, you know, confusions and belief false beliefs to others, you, I think that's preferable. So what I'm now offering is an account of why the the, uh, the quoted expressions or the example expressions. So for example, a lot of philosophers think that in the pedagogical context. You can quote these expressions without offending anybody, or they shouldn't be offended. Or in a, in a play or a movie, some artwork in general, you can quote these expressions without offending people, or they should not be offended. Things of that sort. Um, Liz is one of them. Uh, I find that people get squeamish, even if you're quoting them, you know, or if you're putting in, in a kind of meaning context, like X means X means quote X means X. Imagine replacing X with a third term. There you're not using this third term. You're kind of you're not mentioning it. You mention it in one part, but the other part you're kind of quasi-using it. And you're describing a meaning for the expression. People would still find it offensive. Now you could argue that they're right. all confused. That's your theory. That's your theory. Your theory is that mentions of quotes are inoffensive. If anybody is offended, they're wrongly offended. They're confused. I find that I find that not helpful. And I think I've made enemies over there because people think that if I challenge their views on this, I'm basically charging them with xenophobia. I'm, I'm basically calling them with xenophobia because they're ignorant of the offenses. They could. I think the simplest way to see this is that there are two ways to cause pain, right? You can cause pain. That's, that's downstream, but up, upstream, you can also, you can, uh, you might be a reaction. So I might, I might think hard about what you said. And conclude that it was it was a mistake for you to have said it, but I might still be stung. So you might use the N word in front of me in the context of a teaching it, and or it might be you're ignorant. You just said no, you're a foreign speaker. You didn't know this was a bad word in English. So you speak this word, and I might say, oh, I'm stung. Right, as soon as I hear it, I'm in pain. I suppose, but from that doesn't follow you did anything wrong. That's downstream, right? That's much further down the list. You go through all the reasons. You say, well, you know, the guy didn't know what he was saying. Or it was a child. Child didn't appreciate the import of his expressions. Or it was a play. Or it was a lot. It was a philosophy class. Something that effect. Those might have impact on 
how you react after the eventual pain. But the eventual pain is there. And that can't be denied. I think what people are missing, which I think must must be a common distinction in ethics, is the difference between the causal notion and the rationalistic intentional notion of pain. You know, there's, there's, there's the pain you receive from having witnessed someone do something immoral. And there's the pain you receive just from like someone punching in the face. And the, 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 what I'm talking about is the punch in the face, the sting that the start time provokes in you when you hear it, even if it's, or when you see it, even if it's in quotes. Right. Right. I, there's a, a, the distinction that comes to mind when, when you talk about, when you mention Williamson's view, that it, it, the use mentioned distinction and people are just confused. And maybe, maybe they shouldn't be offended, but the fact of the matter is that uh, they are. And maybe that's what is more important in practical considerations. I want to point out to you that there are lots of examples. I'm giving to you some of them right now. This thing really rich about this literature, there are lots of real case examples where people have lost their jobs over these kinds of errors. So there's a famous example from Baltimore where a guy is speaking, uh, I think it's a city treasurer, some, someone, per, bursar, someone working for the city government involved with the finances. And um, he uses an adverb. He's speaking to a largely black audience. And he uses an adverb which means cheap. You know, it's the N-word. Yeah, I know the adverb you're thinking yeah. of. And people go nuts. Now, initially, you could just say, well, they're confused. They, they, they thought that word was con historically connected, so etymologically connected, some way connected. It has no connection at all. Now, what's fascinating is that the reaction to this was, uh, you can imagine, a boatload of op-eds. And you could, uh, you could pretty much tell the race of the author by the reaction. All the white authors said, what's going on? These people don't know any, they, they don't know any Latin or something. They don't know something that they, they knew they wouldn't have been offended. And you had a lot of black writers saying, well, let's see. There are 32 synonyms for this word in the OED. Why did he pick this one, which is hardly ever used? No one ever uses this word. He's talking to a larger black audience. Why didn't he think ahead? So it's suggesting his, his, uh, either his intentions were not benign or he didn't think it through carefully when he said it. But here's the main point, though. Years later, like now, for example, the word's still tainted. It's tainted even though everybody knows now it's not etymologically connected in any way, historically connected in any way. To the actual n-word but people prefer not to use that word that word has become banished if you like so that's hard to explain another example is a guy at usc who was teaching uh business english to, to americans about chinese about mandarin they told him that the the uh the you know the, what's the correspond to when you when you're thinking so you don't remember what you have to say you say um 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 in, in mandarin they use the Third person pronoun, demonstrative pronoun, that, the translation of it. So they go that, 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 except it's pronounced the same as the N-word. That's just a boring fact about Mandarin. In Mandarin, the third person demonstrative pronoun is pronounced as uh, the N-word. So he's teaching them this. He's, he begins the lesson by saying, I'm not going to talk about, not English, but Mandarin. Here's the word in Mandarin. And people would go freaked out. They said, I begged them to stop using it. And I don't know what happened to the guy, but I think there was some level of punishment. Uh, but the point being is that this is a case where people knew he wasn't speaking English. They knew he wasn't using the N-word because this is not a, it's not a word, it's not a word in Chinese. And yet, uh, he got in trouble for it. Uh, they, they were stung. 
So that's a case, you might say they were all confused, but they knew, they knew a language. The guy was teaching them Mandarin. He wasn't teaching them English. And they knew the N-word does not exist in Mandarin. Yet it sounded like it. So that's another kind of example. I go on and on with examples like this, but they're all examples that are intended to challenge the claim that people either are making use mention confusion or don't realize they're making use mention confusion. These are cases where they're not making use mention confusion. They couldn't possibly be making use mention confusion. Now, returning more to the book, what does it mean for you uh, to give a philosophical account of slurs? What are the sorts of things that you're endeavoring to explain and this, the difficulties that arise in doing so? Well, the main thing is that when I, so I have three episodes in my life, three, three periods in my life where I went back to slurs. In the aughts, I collaborated with Lovell Anderson. He was a third-year graduate student. He wanted to read Williamson on slurs. I was shocked that Williamson had written on slurs. I said, you mean Tim Williamson from Oxford? He said, yeah. On slurs? He said, yeah. Turns out that his paper uh, had several misfortune facts about it. One was that he was writing about conventional implicatures because he thinks that slurs are like conventional implicature items at a time when Chris Potts' book was just surging forward. I don't know if you read the book or not, but one of the key parts of the book is that no paradigm example, no example that has ever been proposed as a as a conventional implicature item in Grice or anywhere else, Kripke or anywhere else, turns out to be one under Potts' analysis. So under Potts' yeah. analysis, uh, 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 slur terms, conventional implicature items are like a positives. Like, like Robinson, who I'm now talking to, uh, is at Stanford. It's like who I'm talking to, that part there. It's sometimes called non-restricted author clause, sometimes called them positive, like J.F. Kennedy, the president of the United States, was assassinated. So that's not like but or any of the other examples of implicatures that Grice and others use. So that's an interesting fact by itself. But independently of that, if you look at the paper, it's more in the style of, you know, Dumb, I don't know if you know this, but Dummett wrote on slur terms and Robert Brand, Bob Brandon wrote on slur terms as well. But all three of those authors, uh, Williamson, Brandon, and, 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 um, um, Dummett, uh, all wrote about them in a way that was really in the service of sort of meta-semantics. They were trying to figure out whether they could defend a certain kind of inferentialism in terms of meaning determination. So, you know, like someone might say the meaning of the word and is the fact that P and Q imply a, a P, or P, comma, Q, and tail P and Q. You know, you don't know, you don't understand the ampersand. You don't understand and if you don't know that fact. Or right. so on, so those are all inferential patterns that, that you think that you associate the meaning of them. Well, these philosophers are inferentialists, at least Dummett and, and uh, Brantham are in the sense that they think that all words are like that. Every word is like that. That, that those are the meaning of the words know is an inferential pattern. It's a conceptual role, something like that. Uh, and then in slur terms help them make that case. So they're not really interested in slur terms per se. They're interested in using facts about common sense facts about easily accessible facts about uses of terms to defend a certain meta-semantics about, about actual language semantics. So the, the only paper I could find, actually, written before Lavelle and I were writing, was a paper by Jen Hornsby on silentism, which was written, I think, in the 90s or maybe even the 80s. Silentism? Like, yeah. The idea that... You, I'm not familiar with that. Well, the idea that um, that the way in which people silence other people. You know, that you... Uh, like if someone... Especially you're in a room, this has happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you as well. You're in a room and some xenophobe walks in and uses a slur term. 
you know, how do you react? You think, well, one reaction would be to say, I'm, I'm just backing off. I'm not part of this conversation. That's silence. Right? You, 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 you react by silence. Well, is that the, but the problem with that is that silence often means acceptance, right? If you don't say anything, you, you're basically letting the person put something on the record, the conversational record that shouldn't go on the record. You don't want it anywhere near the line of record. So there's those issues. And I thought the paper is, you should just take a look at Jen Hornsby's paper. It's, it's in the document I sent you, it's in the bibliography, so you can get it easily. It's definitely worth reading. It still holds up really beautifully today. But other than that, hmm. the, the aughts were empty. And Lavelle and I spent an entire year reading Williamson over and over and over again. Anything else that was connected to it, we could find, we would read. And at the end of the year, we decided to write a, like a book report, like how we spent our year together. And we wrote it up. I said, I don't know why we did this. It felt to me, it didn't feel like an essay, it felt like a book report. We sent it off to Noose and they accepted it right away. And the thing has like nearly 400 citations, which is extraordinary. And given that paper I put the least amount of energy into, in some sense, or other, it's got very, a, lot, a lot of citations for the article. Um, but then in the teens, Matthew Stone and I were working on stuff on convention and literatures and, and imagination, use of imagination and language uh, situations. And he wanted to go back to his terms with me. So we went back, we added a new layer of, of theory on it. And then in the, in the 20s, Stochnik started, started reading the papers that I had read, written with, uh, with Stone, which she collaborates with regularly, and with Val Anderson. And she wanted to return to it. So it's, so it's three different cycles, so to speak. And each cycle, I, I, I kind of reject the view before, but I add on to it. So I don't reject it entirely. I just add on to it. So I've been adding stuff onto it. I'm hoping I'm done. I hope, I hope there's another decade of this, but we'll see. So writing the book was, I think it was, one of the things that's interesting is that when we wrote our original article, we realized immediately that this, the dominant view was that whatever makes slurs offensive, it has something to do with their meaning. That was the dominant view. Is that the pejorative content account? Yeah, that's the pejorative content account. Okay. So the first six chapters, the, the chapters two through seven, I guess, are all about various ways in which you can make sense of this idea that it's the meaning. Is it predicative? Is it presuppositional? Is it conventional applicature? Is it perspectival? Is it pragmatic? Is it, we go through all the various accounts. What's fascinating is, much like a, a, a salesperson, you know, Fodor told me that when he was at MIT, the economics department would figure out what was popular at any given moment, figure out what the properties were, and whether there were any niches that weren't filled in yet. So you'd say, well, it was tasty, but hard, chewy, but not easily swallowed, and so on. And they say, well, we don't have anything that's not easily swallowed, but tasty. Let's find that out. So they all the little boxes that have to be filled in. That's what's been going on in philosophy with about such terms. Every possible theory imaginable has been, has been adopted by someone. Each person is trying to find their own niche. So although there was nothing written in the aughts, now there are hundreds of papers written on these topics, and every position you could think of has been adopted by someone or other. And the standard view is, is still the view that it has something to do with content in some way or other, either conveyed semantically or conveyed pragmatically, mostly semantically. Mm -hmm. So you have predictive accounts, those are the earliest ones, Chris Hom and some others, Robert May. You have presuppositional accounts advocated by, uh, let's see who does those. Uh, there's the French linguist, what's his name? Who's at NYU, he's mostly in Paris, but he's at NYU as well. Schlenker, Schlenker is a presuppositionalist. Uh, you got people like uh, Tim Williamson advocating, and, and also Chris Potts at some stage of his career, advocating a conventional picature account. You have 
uh, people like Liz Camp and Robin Cheshire uh, offering an expressivist account, and also POTS more, the, more recently. Go ahead. I just wanted to clarify, though, uh, but one group of these, their pejorative content accounts, but wouldn't Liz's be a non-content account? No, she, or... thinks, she thinks perspective is part of content meaning. Okay, okay, so these are all content accounts. All content accounts. So she's the first one okay. to tell you, no matter how open-ended it is, perspective might be, it, it, it carries meaning. It's part of the assertion. But she's impressed by the fact that um, if you say someone's the N-word, I say, no, he's not. It looks like we're, we're having a debate of some sort, or what kind of debate are we having? She thinks about content. So, uh, and then there's pragmatic accounts like Rene Belageron and and the, I think he was at Stanford, um, Nunberg, Jeffrey Nunberg. They're offering pragmatic stories. They're not Gricean stories, but they're pragmatic in one sense of the word. They're not about content in the semantic sense. That, that's the one that's not easy to chat about over, over this kind of format. Take more time. So I go through all those with uh, Una, and we, we agree that they're all wrong. None of them works. We go through general problems and then specific problems as well. And uh, then we turn to non-semantic accounts, and I've been, I have to admit that I'm a proponent of each of them. Each of the non-semantic accounts I've endorsed at some point in my career. So the first one is the prohibitionist one that Will and I advocated, which says that the reason why slur terms are bad is because they're prohibited. They've been banished. And anyone who violates the, the prohibition is, is committed an offensive crime. The second one says that, no, they carry all these tonal. It's, it's all about tone. They carry these attitudes towards individuals. And that's what we find offensive. And the third one is the one that I'm defending now, the articulation view, which I'll come to later. That's a very, it's, it's a view that sounds preposterous on its face, but there's a lot of data for it. And it's hard to explain it on any of the other accounts. So I, someone's got to explain it. We offer an explanation. But I haven't said anything about it yet. I'll come to that a little bit later. I am curious about the sorts of, hmm, the sorts of phenomena that maybe the, take the first group, the pejorative accounts, the pejorative content accounts, what they can't okay. account for, uh, yeah, to good. use that word again, good. that makes you want to reject them. Well, the main, I have a lot of problems. One of them is the one you began the discussion with today, namely that, um, uh, no one actually ever gives you the meaning. You say, what, what is the meaning? So it's particularly pernicious because, you know, there are many slur terms in English for the same group. So we, have, we don't have a single slur term. There's some groups of individuals that we slur in many different ways. And we'd all agree that some of these slurs are worse than others. So some, say, some people say the N-word is the worst word in the English language. But there are a lot of other words. that it, So words that were popular in the 50s and 60s as polite, ways of addressing African-Americans, but now because of offensive ways of addressing African-Americans. And in fact, if I'm not mistaken, Lavelle was telling me relatively recently that even in choosing between black and African-American, there's some debate going on. One of these one of these terms, I forget I forget which, but one of these terms is preferred over the other. Um, and same thing with homosexuals, same thing with uh, women. One of the worst words in the English language is a woman is a slow term for women, but we have a lot of slow terms for women. But they don't have equal force. So you'd expect that mm -hmm. you think it has something to do with meaning. You would hear the meaning, and you would see, oh, yeah, that's much worse than this. But in fact, if you look at the OED under any slur term, any slur term, think of all the slur terms that you know about for all the different peoples and groups and so on. And you look up in the dictionary, it says slur term for X. And then it says, uh, what does it mean? Well, it means, uh, for, for let's say it's a slur term for women. It's a slur term for women, which means something like, 
is um, is inferior on account of being a woman. So it's in virtue of being a woman that you're inferior. But this is not about women, about blacks, about homosexuals, about whatever, whatever group you're attacking, it's the same entry. They just change the group that you're picking out. So the name of the group changes. But if that were the case, then how do you explain that some slur terms are more pernicious than others? It's all about meaning. You should be able to spell it out, but no one ever does that. So that's one problem. One problem all accounts have is no one actually ever gives you the meaning. They don't give it to you. It's unspecified. Yeah, do you want to jump? Is, yeah, I wanted to jump in because I wanted to ask if this was another problem for the pejorative content accounts. It, it's difficult to account for why some groups of people can use a slur and right. it not have pejorative content right. or be interpreted as a pejorative, whereas if another group does, it is highly offensive. Right. And if the content is just contained in the word sort of inherently, for lack of a better term, uh, this doesn't seem to uh, jive with actual experience. Well, the standard way out of this, like Mark Rashard is a good example. There's a book they wrote, I think, in the 80s. Maybe not. Mark Richard yeah. of Harvard? Yeah, of Harvard. Well, I don't know of Tufts, but he's at Harvard now. When he wrote that book, yeah. he was still at Tufts. I think, maybe he was at Harvard. He's been at Harvard for a while now. But anyway, uh, in that book, when he considers reclaimed uses, he says of them, they're ambiguous. They're another meaning. But it's, it's a weird kind of ambiguity. You know, it's usually thought to be an accident. Like bank is ambiguous because it comes from Old Norse and Old French. And in Old French, it's spelled B-A-N-Q-U-E. And in Old Norse, it's close to B-A-N-K. Um, and it uh, turns out that now they're homophons, um, but that's an accident. So most people think of ambiguity as accident, accidental. But this doesn't look accidental. They don't think that the, the nice word for the blacks use with each other, the reclaimed use, they don't think of that as a different word or a different, you know, altogether or an ambiguous reading of the, of the bad word. So that's one problem. But that seems to be the, com the, the common view for the predicate of this is to say, for, actually, for any pejorative content view, is to say that it has a different content, which seems crazy. It seems as though it, its content play, its 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 ordinary content plays some role, right? I mean, you think that the same associations are there, but something done, some some kind of speech act which flips them in some way or other. But one of the things that's hard to explain if you think it's ambiguity is why can't you use it? If it's just ambiguity, why can't you say, "Oh, I don't mean the bad one; I mean the good one." When I spoke. Right. Yeah. Why can't you do that? So what's prohibiting you from doing mm -hmm. that if it's about meaning? Why can't you say, I mean the, I mean the good meaning, I don't mean the bad meaning? It doesn't work like that. It was very funny, very interesting. In fact, I was one time with Lavelle in the hallway with other colleagues of mine, and one of our former colleagues, no longer at Rutgers, came up and he slid next to Lavelle and the rest of us and said, hey, Ann, like he was like, like, like it was his buddy. And we all like, whoa, we back, we we all backed up like, we're not here. I'm not even here. And then the guy finally left. And Lavelle said, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> Wait, was he a white guy? Yeah. He wasn't a white guy? Yeah, white guy. He thought, oh that, my he, God. He thought he was so cool that he could get away with dropping this, the N-word. Because he was cool. He could, he could reclaim it. He was reclaiming the N-word. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Didn't work. Kind of felt out on its no. face. I don't recommend it to yeah. anyone. No. But the same thing. But on the other hand, on the other hand, when I was in, I was lecturing, I gave lectures on this topic in London about, so did Liz, a couple months ago. And I was in this Foyles bookstore, which was open to the public. It was a Friday night. I thought it would be empty. The room was packed. 
you know, 150 people in there. But they came off the streets. They weren't like philosophers. These are people that were, were bored to death. It was Friday night. They want to do something. Free lecture on slur terms. And I expected the worst to happen. It turns out that in British English, one of the worst words in the English language in America is a word for women. But in British English, they use it like it means like like jerk. It's not, it's not a terrible. Oh, yeah, I know the word. But why? How did that yeah. happen? You know, like, how does that happen? It's like guys call each other that all the time. And it's people who are, you think it was being pretty cultivated use that term. I heard, I heard Michael Dummett refer to someone. I heard Simon Blackburn refer to Michael Dummett with that word. I've heard Michael Dummett say someone else with that word and so on. I just think these are gentlemen. You know, how do they get away with this? So it's, it's alarming. Yeah. It's jarring when you first hear it. That's exactly the word I was thinking. Jarring. It is jarring. So good. So, yeah. so the point I'm making is the specification problem has always existed. For, all, for every count I'm aware of, there's a specification problem. That is, they cannot specify the meaning. I don't think I can either, but, I don't, but I'm not a meaning theorist. So I don't have to specify the meaning. I actually think the word just means no more than what its uh, neutral counterpart means. So the N-word means what black means, or whatever you think the neutral counterpart of the N-word is. That's my theory. That's the end of my semantics. It's a, it's a, it's a rigid referring term. It picks out a property, probably being African-American or black, whatever you want to call it. And that's it. We're done. Now let's get started. Now what's my theory? What's my non-semantic theory or non-content theory? For I offered three different attempts. Well, maybe if uh, it's okay, I'd like to talk a bit more about the first two, because like you mentioned, you've you've endorsed three over the past uh, some years. But if you want to go into the the third one now, that's fine too. We'll save it for but, last. I'll show you why why the first two, what the successes of the first two, and then I'll get to the short. Yeah, part. yeah. So what I had in mind was the first that you've already uh, mentioned, which is your joint work with Lavelle, where I think the non-content has to do with taboos. And then the other was in joint work with uh, Matthew Stone, who we've also already mentioned. And I understand that the salient feature here of the slurs is their association to negative content. Or okay. negative, well, it's not, it's not their association, association to negative content. It's association. Yeah, negative associations. And right, by the way, right. I would point out to you that it's, it's the first two combined because the words are prohibited. So what was missing in the first one was it was putting the, the, the cart before the horse. I said these words are prohibited and that causes pain. They said, well, yeah, but they're prohibited for a reason. The reason why they're prohibited. Well, now I'm that period in the teens, I was saying they're prohibited because they have these bad associations. So when you token one of these words, right, you provoke all these associations and they're painful. People don't want, some people, you know, xenophobes that love it, maybe perhaps. Ignorant people might love it. People who know, who, who don't want these terms to be used, they feel the pain immediately because they have all these negative associations. Uh, much like, uh, you know, imagery or tokens. There's a certain things, gestures with the hands, they're supposed to indicate certain kinds of uses of pejorative. They have pejorative tone to them, so on. So that's, we're saying that same thing with words. Their associations bring up these bad feelings. So those are the two views. Uh, I can elaborate if you want, but that's pretty much it. Yeah, please. I, no, I would love to hear you elaborate on it. And then I would also like to hear why you eventually decided yeah. to move away from them? Well, I, I'll do both at once. So the reason why I was approved, so the second one's, first one just says that people's complained, they said, well, yeah, why were they prohibited? You have to tell someone why they're prohibited. And that's where the meaning comes in. I said, well, that has to be meaning. It could be associations. 
That's what Matthew and I added. So we say the, 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 the tokening of the word is a violation of prohibition. And the reason why it's prohibited is because it provokes you to think about these associations, which you don't want to think about. Remember I said to you that a lot of times you just you feel like you're being punched in the face. You don't have any control over that. Same thing when you hear a slip on it, you're stung. You're like, whoa, I can't believe they just used that word. And and Liz and others, well, one of the problems about writing about slurs is you want this thing because you want people to realize that there's something worthy of discussion here, that you want to explain this way. On the other hand, you're guilty. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I'm going to sting you now, but, but it's okay. I'm, I'm allowed to sting you. Why? Well, because I'm a teacher. I'm an actor. I'm a, you know, I'm a foreigner. I'm a child, and so on. Uh, that doesn't get you off the hook automatically. You have to reason your way into that. You say, well, he didn't really know what he was saying, or he meant it to be just pedagogical. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people, like, for example, Spike Lee, was really down on Quentin Tarantino's various films. Right. They're saying, you're white. Because so Tarantino said, wait a minute, you do the same thing. He said, I'm Spike Lee, I'm black. It's different. And then they say, what the hell's the difference? One's black, one's white, and so on. It made a difference in some way or other. So even though he was doing it for the sake of, or another example that people would bring up is take, uh, what's what's the film he made? About? He made lots of films about, about racism, Spike Lee. Django and Chain. Yeah, take Django and Chain versus uh, the one about uh, Jackie Robinson. It was called 54 or something like that. The I think number, it was called Jackie Robinson. No, it was the number he wore. The number he wore when he was with the Brooklyn Dodgers. I think it was 54 maybe. If we look it up, it doesn't matter okay. though. But anyway, they asked you to compare these two. Well, the N-word was used in the Jackie Robinson film because they wanted you to see. It was shocking to me because it was the, the coach of the, the manager of the Philadelphia Phillies. You think that's that's North. That's not South. Cursing at him from one dugout to the other saying, come on, N, get up the bat. We're going to kill you. You're a monster. We hate you. We, we can sleep with your children and so on. This is horrific things. This is Philadelphia against New York. You think these are not like, it's not like Alabama against New York. It's. So it was shocking to see what's going on. And apparently, all this really happened during Jack Roberts' first year in the pros. Um, so you could say, I get that. But in the, in the, in the Quentin Tarantino case, you might say, well, it looks capricious. He didn't need to do that to make his point. So there are all these issues at play. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so but the question is, why? Why are they at play? And the answer that Matt and I offered is because of these associations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was just going to ask, just to make sure that I'm on the same page, as opposed to, so since we've been using the N-word as an example, as opposed to saying it is bad because of the content, because, I mean, the content, if the content is just black, it's not bad. When you combine these two non-content accounts, the idea is that the N-word is prohibited because of the negative associations yeah. that the N-word has with slavery, subjugation, yes. colonial, all these sorts of things. Yes. Okay. Also, don't forget this. You got to remember where we are in the dialectic. We're at a stage in the book where I allegedly have established that all the preceding views, all the content views, fail. And one, and the giant argument, right. the big argument, there's, all, there's individual arguments along the way against each account. But there's the overarching argument is the problem of hyper, hyper, uh, projection, which is that even out of quote marks, they, they project even, whatever it is about these slur terms that makes you feel bad when you're confronted by them. If you're not a xenophobe, they, they jump out of you even when you quote them, even when you're quoting them. Right. 
So that can't be content because the presumption is that when you use a quote, you freeze the content. Content's no longer in play. Right. Interesting. Interesting. I like this word hyperprojection. I haven't encountered I it before. The word. I created that word. And then what I'm Oh, well, thank you. It's a good word. I, I think I think I took it off of um, church and, you know, hyper hyper intentional. You know, we're talking about church's account of Frega. You know, the kind of the old examples that Burge endorses as well as he wondered whether Fortnite was two, 12, was uh, eight weeks. What was it? Four, Fortnite was two weeks. Oh, Fortnite's two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. It's, like, and because 14, Fort is 14, just like they used to use Senite for seven nights for a week. Okay. Anyway, getting back to where we were, um, <laughs> yeah. I've gotten rid of all the meaning counts because they, the, the data survives uh, quotation. And it also survives context. So uh, I said, Liz, some people are uncomfortable here. So, for example, Matthew and Una, what, what helped me in, in collaborating with them was that they were two people that got really anxious if you even quoted a slur term. So they said, you can't quote a slur term. I said, well, how are we going to talk about this topic? We can't quote them. We can't quote them. I mean, how are we going to get across to what our topic is? So, for example, I published a couple of articles. I don't know if you knew this, but I published a couple of articles in the New York Times about slur terms. And uh, at one point, the editor of the New York Times wrote to me and said, now, Ernie, you do realize... They cannot use the N-word. I said, I would never use the N-word. In my life, I never used the N-word. They said, no, no, you can't use the N-word. I said, I know. I said, I would never use the N-word. They said, no, you can't use the expression, the N-word. I said, what? You can't use, you can't use the description, the N-word. I said, why is that? I said, this, all canonical descriptions of slur terms are off limits in the New York Times. I said, well, how am I going to talk about this topic then? A word that begins with an N, you know, ends with an R. I have this elaborate description. And it was very hard to write that piece. So I was under the guidelines. The, the rules have changed, by the way, as, as far as I could tell. At that point, this is in the early, in the aughts. I was writing for the Times, wrote two or three pieces for the Times on this topic, New York Times. Uh, I was bound by this rule that I couldn't use any expression that was canonical for picking out the group. That was odd. But anyway, um, the accounts that I offered so far, the Prohibitions account and the Prohibitions Plus Association account, both those accounts can account for why even a quoted expression is bad because it's token. Expression has been token. It's inside a quote mark, but there it is. It's sitting right there. The word has been token. Okay, so that's where we are when we get to the last part of the book. Now what drives and, and And the it, it still has these, it still has this negative pejorative force because it's been tokened uh, because even though it's in quotes, one, it has it ha, it still counts as breaking the taboo, and it still delivers these negative associations. Right, that's okay. why it succeeds against the hyper projection. Perfect, you got it. Okay, you're, okay, perfect. You're, you're my model reader. Oh, great! <laughs> now I'm glad to hear that. What's the problem? The problem is inheritance. So what that happens in language? is that words that are different from the slur terms, not related to the slur terms, but are pronounced the same way or written the same way, so they have something in common with their articulation, wind up becoming soiled. Right? We call this the inherent problem of inheritance. So, for example, as you said before, this adverb... Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. ...became bad, not because it was a bad word, but because it had a bad sound. It sounded a lot like the N-word. Right. So the point being is that um, it looks as though the the uh, culprit 
is not the expression, not the word per se, because you have two things. First of all, if you mispronounce the word significantly, what far from its canonical standard pronunciation, probably you won't get the sting. Sting won't happen. You could still get a moral judgment later down the road when you say, oh, did you realize when he said that, he was saying the N-word? Really? That guy, he's a bastard. He should be banished from this classroom. So all these reactions, but not the sting. The sting wasn't there because he didn't recognize the sting because it wasn't familiar to you. The sting is brought to you by its articulation. You learn about the sting from articulate. The thing is, whenever you're presented with a word, whenever I, this is another book and articles I've written, whenever you're presented with a word, you're presented with an articulation of the word. You cannot present a word without articulating it. But the articulation is not identical. So the problem is that forever and ever and ever in the metaphysics of language, people have thought that the articulation of a word is part of the word. If you look, look at the Chomsky tradition and so on, if you say, what, what are words? They have a phonological component. That's confusion. Notice the following. I'll give you a little thought experiment. Imagine, well, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say the the reason that I immediately think that this is not true is because of a case like Helen Keller, where there she might grasp a word, but for her there is no sound associated with it at all. But there's this, right? There's this. You, true. That's yeah, the, absolutely. So um, the tactile sensation. So what I'm you is the reason why I mention this is that we usually when we talk about articulation, we talk about phonology or or graphemics, you know. But that's such, that's because we're limited and boring. But in fact, uh, you could you could smoke English, you can you know, smoke signals, you can uh, Morse code English, you can yeah yeah yeah. You could sign. There's actually something called sign English. Not 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 just the what's standardly taught to people who are deaf, but ASL ASL. Not not just ASL. There's actually something called sign English. Um, okay. So there are lots of the only imagination will limit you how you can articulate English. You can articulate English in all sorts of ways. Imagine the following. Imagine you had three people who are all competent in English, right? It's a really easy thought experiment. So three people that are equally competent in English, except the following distinguishes them. One guy can read English and write English, but he can't speak it. And he can't sign it. One can sign it, but he can't read it or write it or speak it. One can speak it, but he can't write, sign or read. So they can't communicate. Why? Not because they don't share a language. They all speak English. They're all totally proficient in English. They don't share a, a system of articulation. So their articulation is obviously different from the language because they both know English. What they don't know is they don't know how to articulate English in the same way. So if you want to communicate with that them. That is really nice. Here's what's mind-boggling. No one's ever seen that. That's a shocking. That's like a distinction that's just plucked. It's like <laughs> yeah. low-hanging fruit. Well, here's a distinction. I thought when I first got I, I knew Umberto Eco pretty well. I called him up and I said, Umberto, you're a medievalist. Did the medievalist serve? Because you think this is something the medievalist must have in mind. No, not aware of it. Semioticians, not aware of it. It's bizarre because it's looked like such an obvious distinction to make. But the problem is that everybody in the, and his mother were shaped the earth about word individuation. If you look at Donald Davidson's paper on words um, and anything else, you know, uh, who else I have in mind that you would see right away? Well, Capellan wrote on this. A lot of people wrote on this. Uh, Lewis. Um, Kaplan, Perry, all these people were, were uh, identified the word with its shape. Now, that's a crazy view if you think about it, because what's the common shape between a spoken English word and a written English word? If the word's identified with a shape, what shape is that? What, what kind of shape is it that transfers over from spoken to written? And of course, as you noted immediately, which is very good on your part, is that those are just two ways of articulating this. You could articulate English with smoke signals, you know, with sign symbols, with 
who knows, Morse code anyway. You can imagine all sorts of ways of creating new ways of articulating English. Um, but they're all independent of English. English exists. Now we're showing you how to put it, how to map it in a way that you can get something from it. So our claim is that sometimes when you're presented with a word and its articulation, the association attaches to the articulation, not to the word, but to the articulation. How do you know that? Because if you mispronounce the word, they don't get the same associations. They're not provoked. And if you, and if you say a word which is, is like it, phonologically or graphemically like it, you get the same kind of associations, even if I don't want to have them. So if you say the N word with the L-Y on the end, immediately people who know the etymology, they know it's not connected historically, they still say, ooh, ooh please don't use another word. Just use another, banish that word. That word is essentially not usable anymore. And that happens all the time. So think about children. One of the favorite games of children is to trick their parents or their friends into saying some word fast three times and it sounds like an N-word. They say, oh, it sounds like a start from some sort. It's a game they play all the time with each other. They try to get you to say some bad word. You don't actually say the bad word, but it sounds like you say the bad word because you, if you say this one good word three times fast, you know, it sounds like the bad word. So that, so you still get blamed for, made fun of or whatever, ridiculed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though it's it's not that word, you didn't you didn't use the word. You clearly didn't intend to use the word. If you, if you use the word, you use it by accident. You use, what you did is use the homophone. You said something that sounds like it, and you're punished for that. You're, you're ridiculed for that. Mm -hmm. So we argue there's yeah. lots of data that shows that slur slurring can be inherited by an association that's attached not to the word itself but to the articulation of the word. That's a new view. Mm -hmm. it sounds crazy on its face, but. This, this is not it, sounds, <laughs> it sounds crazy, but it's so neat. <laughs> I really like yeah. it. It's funny you mentioned these games. Uh, this is, I mean, going to sound childish on this academic podcast. With, I remember this game when, well, it wasn't a game, but it's sort of in the same spirit of what you said. I, I When I was in, I don't know, second grade, third grade, first grade, you would tell somebody to say, to spell I cup and then say funny colors. And then you would say, you would then think about it, and then you'd say, I-C-U-P, funny colors. And I don't know why, but it was always like, I, my kid always a joke. And it's, I kid did that all the time when he was little. All the time he did that. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, it survived. It survived you. It's, it continues on into history. But there are all yeah. sorts of yeah, but, so, so it's just interesting that uh, how important the articulation is, because clearly... You, well, the point is that you have no idea what you're saying, but the mere fact that you've articulated it uh, gives it some sort of force. Right. And I'll tell you this. If you don't intend to say the A word, N word, but someone tricks you into saying it, it causes pain. There's no doubt in my mind that it causes pain. So mm -hmm. but Liz doesn't get this. She thinks the pain's necessary. Matthew and Ona, they both freak out. And they, they, that's why she came up with the uh, mud blood. She said that, and even then she said, I know it's going to offend some people. Big fans of Harry Potter are going to be happy about this, but I'll risk it. It's the risk I could take. But I mean, basically, it's a topic. It's, a, it's the topic that shall not be mentioned. You know, you can't you can't use you can't use any of the expressions that you're talking about in order to to, to do their semantics or pragmatics or their or their just the historical facts about them. It's so wild. Mm. But I, I came no. around to this. You know, after a while, I saw up. One thing that's fascinating is I one time gave a lecture in Northwest. And it was a big cognitive science lecture, maybe 150 people in the room. 
And there were, it's coincidentally in that room, we're sitting the chair of African-American studies, chair of Latino studies, and the chair of LGBT studies. All three of them were in the room. And they were arguing against me because I said, you can't use these words ever. And they said, well, I can use them in my classroom. And what they did was interesting because in the classroom, they're comfortable. They know who everybody is. They know that it's acceptable. They understood this house rule. But in this big hall, they don't know who they are. And, they, and what they showed that they, they were aware of this at some level because when they actually token the expression that they claim they could use all the time in their classrooms without any trouble, they lowered the decibel about 180%. So they said, I say this all the time. I say, N-I-G-E-R. Yeah. They spell it out or something like that very quietly. I said, what? I couldn't hear anything. So in some sense, at some level, their body was correcting for their intentions. They wanted it out of this work because they wanted to show that they were bigger than the, the practice, but they couldn't do it. When they tried to do it, their body said, no, 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 silence, get to the low, lower, lower the decibels. The reason being that they don't know who these people are in the room. They don't know if they're offending them or not. That was my point. That's no point I was making. Hmm. But Matthew well, Stone was that- the hives. I mean, if I said the N-word, for him, quoted the N-word in front of him, he'd have hives. That's how anxious he was. <laughs> hmm. Well, granted that the book is still under review, so the general public hasn't had an opportunity. Well, the general, not the general public at all, but your philosophical peers haven't had a chance to look at the book yet. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you anticipate and or have preemptively responded to any anticipated objections. Well, I hope I have the latter, but of course I haven't. Um, there'll be people who complain about something. Oh, that's the nature of the profession. Um, on the other hand, we published an article in uh, we published an article in uh, in PPR, I guess, about a year ago. That was, was kind of a, moving in this direction. It was, I think it was called something about unwanted articulations. I can't remember the exact title now, but something like that. So we were sort of telegraphing what the third view was, and also Huna um, published a paper that won some kind of prize in some line or some journal about what are words. A special issue of some journal on one of words, and that in that in that paper is hinting about you have the right theory of individuation. You can solve lots of puzzles, one of which is the puzzle about specification of third terms and so on. So it's been in the air. Now I see that it is getting dark where you are. So I'm just going to ask uh, one more question. It's eight o'clock. Taken... Wow, we went on for a while. Good for you. Yeah. I've taken you on for a while, but something that jumps out at me that I think is really important about this book, and it's it's not something that's ever explicitly uh, said or, or mentioned or anything, but I've, I just picked up on it. It's that, you, well, here, I'll, I'll, I actually have a, a quote that I think uh, expresses this sort of well, but this book challenges both sorts of approaches and defends a novel alternative Blank, 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 blank. Um, both sorts of approaches being, I think, the pejorative, uh, the the content and the non-content right. accounts. And what I'm what I'm noticing here is you're challenging your own accounts. I know. And or well, one of I feel like one of them is your own account. I feel like Putnam. Putnam has changed mine all the time. So the same thing. Voter too. Voter changed mine all the time as well. Some philosophers never change their mind, but voter Putnam. Yeah, so that that's what I wanted to ask you about. I mean, so many philosophers, once they have defended something in print, they will like die before they yeah, uh, recant. And I'm wondering, yeah, I'm wondering what it is you think 
about you as a person that lets you, I mean, let go. Something tells me it has something to do with the attitude that you espoused earlier in your life when you wanted to do philosophy of language for self-improvement. This is about uh, getting better or moving toward the truth or something like that. Yeah, and you're not going right. to cling to the past. I think some of that's true. Also, I think that um, I'm, uh, I'm not embarrassed by my mistakes. I mean, I'm, I'm happy I figured out there were mistakes. I think that's an accomplishment. Figure out you said something that was wrong. And notice, by the way, that the views that I have advocated become, in some sense, part of the part I'm changing is is the word versus articulation part. Uh, cause, and so there's the mistake that the content theorists make and the, and the non-content theorists make is they're all about, they're all about words. I'm coming, it's not about words or articulations. So I'm kind of happy that different strains of my life came together. I've been writing about words and articulations for a while and, uh, I'm doing papers on the, Hawthorne and I had a paper and JP on, on the metaphysics of words a while ago. And now it turns out I can use that in this discussion here. So I was very happy that my two worlds co- collapsed or collided or whatever. Um, I don't, I, maybe I should, but I don't feel bad about changing my mind if it's, if it's an improvement. If I, I don't see why anyone would. It's sort of weird that they would. I think some people are just terrified of making mistakes. I'm not at all. I think growing up in New Jersey, that was part of it. If you grow up in New Jersey, you're not worried about it. You're assuming you make mistakes. Um, that's it. That's all I got to say. Okay. Well, Ernie, I mean, this has been great on, on a number of levels. I really, I really appreciated all of your stories in the first uh, 20 or 30 minutes or so. It was great to hear about those characters from uh, a bygone era. And I also, I mean, I really enjoyed this, this new Slurs account. It's really neat. Well, it was nice yeah. meeting you. I hope we'll see you again sometime soon. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this with me, Ernie. It was a really pleasure. phenomenal. Total pleasure. You made it very easy. Thank you. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.